Is the public being subjected to an exaggerated claim of the threat posed by COVID-19? Have the lockdowns made an actual difference in terms of illness fatalities? Is there scientific evidence negating arguments that wearing masks on our faces will actually protect us? Is the media knowingly passing on disinformation and even propaganda around the COVID-19 panic and who is benefiting from the discourse? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we embark on the first part of a series investigating the COVID virus, its impact on our health, our economy, and our society as the medical system and big pharma take us on a new and frightening course through uncharted territory. Our first guest, Sukhsharat Bhakti, informs listeners of the facts spelled out in his recent book, Corona, False Alarm. Our next guest, Mark Crispin Miller, also joins us to share the insights he has gained after writing part of a research article on the real effectiveness of masking as guard against the virus. On this week's program, Coronavirus, A Second Look, Part 1, Killer Virus or Common Flu. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 18th, 2020. I'm host Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Metis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiowak and the Nakota. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major sh issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Over seven decades, the international community abided by a consensus that UNRWA should be preserved as a means of ensuring a modicum of stability in countries hosting Palestinian refugees. Israel's main financer and most powerful backer, the U.S., paid about one-third of the UNRWA budget of $1.2 billion dollars. Donald Trump not only violated the consensus by cutting funding for the agency, but also halting aid to all Palestinian institutions. He recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, severed contacts with the Palestinian Authority, and put forward a so-called peace plan, which would give Israel another 30% of the West Bank and provide for limited Palestinian governance in disconnected enclaves in the West Bank, which would remain under Israeli control. The UN has done nothing to reaffirm the consensus, leaving the Palestinians poor and adrift. That comes from the article, Failing Palestinian Self-Determination, by Michael Jansen, posted September 24th, originally published at the Jordan Times. Hydroxychloroquine is a well-known medicine used to treat many ailments. When properly administered along with zinc, 
hydroxychloroquine represents a threat to the agendas being pushed forward by Bill Gates and Big Pharma. Many powerful interests have a significant stake in imposing a compulsory vaccine on humanity as the universalized remedy for the much-exaggerated incursions of COVID-19. Some of those plotting to advance the vaccine agenda sought to sideline the adoption of hydroxychloroquine as the main remedy for COVID-19. They resorted to a well-organized crime that seemed to fly the banner of science while actually defying its evidence-based requirements. That comes from the article, The Perversion of Science to Clear the Way for the Imposition of Compulsory Vaccines, by Professor Anthony J. Hall, posted September 24th. Apparently, it was Iranian spiritual power which helped the Houthis to regularly pound targets inside Saudi Arabia, including the kingdom's capital and key oil infrastructure projects with missiles and drones, despite the years of Saudi-led air bombing campaigns against Houthi forces and the land and maritime blockade of the areas controlled by them. Iran also denies reports of weapon and equipment supplies to the Houthis. This means missile components must have appeared in the Houthis' hands and their missile and combat drone arsenal been expanded thanks to some unrevealed technological breakthrough behind the scenes. Thus, the military cooperation deal officially signed between the Houthi government and Iran in 2019 was just a formality to highlight the side's unity on the front line in the battle against Zionist plots in the region, which became especially obvious in 2020 when the Houthi leadership alongside with Iran, appeared to be among the most vocal critics of the UAE-Israel and Bahrain-Israel normalization deals. According to them, these developments are part of the wider Zionist campaign against Middle Eastern nations. That comes from the article, Video, Iran Says Houthis Use Its Military Know-How in Battle Against Saudi Arabia. Posted September 24th, originally published at South Front. Dr. Mike Yaden, a former vice president and chief science officer for Pfizer for 16 years, says that half or even almost all of tests for COVID are false positives. Dr. Yaden also argues that the threshold for herd immunity may be much lower than previously thought and may have been reached in many countries already. In an interview last week, Dr. Yaden was asked, We are basing a government policy, an economic policy, a civil liberties policy, in terms of limiting people to six people in a meeting, all based on what may well be completely fake data on this coronavirus? Dr. Yaden answered with a simple yes. Dr. Yaden said in the interview that given the shape of all important indicators in a worldwide pandemic, such as hospitalizations, ICU utilization, and tests, quote, the pandemic is fundamentally over, unquote. That comes from the article, Chief Science Officer for Pfizer says second wave faked on 
false positive COVID tests. Pandemic is over by Ralph Lopez, posted September 24th, originally published at Hub Pages. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. February of 2020, I was struck down with a medical condition that saw me spend a good portion of my life within a hospital facility. During my stay, I managed to keep up to date with the goings-on in the news by tuning into the broadcasters in the unit. The presidential inquiries were making big news in the States. In Canada, there was an upsurge in rail line protests in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en people fighting against government and the natural gas companies. About a month later, a deadly new virus, COVID-19, entered the scene. Cases started to spring up in a few separate places throughout the U.S., as well as in B.C., Ontario, and Quebec. Within a couple of weeks, the numbers soared. It had gotten so out of hand that serious measures were called for, and I mean serious. And in the news media, for weeks on end, you got absolutely no coverage of anything not associated with COVID-19. For the first time, no one was allowed out of certain countries. Before long, all people traveling abroad were recalled. Children were prevented from attending classes for weeks. All public gatherings of more than a few people at a time were barred. Sports, entertainment gatherings, everything was ground to a halt. In the hospital facility in which I was located, the changes hit hard. We patients started eating three meals a day in one room and sharing facilities for the physical and osteotherapeutic needs. And we could bring in patients throughout the day. By the time I left, we were confined to our bedrooms. No one off the ward and no more visitors and all caretakers present, from janitors to nurses, were encouraged, if not mandated, to wear masks. Many people were forced out of work. The country was in a state of lockdown. For several weeks, everyone besides grocers and suppliers were forced to stay home. With time, the numbers started improving, and the lockdown would be gradually eased. That's how the pandemic played out. That's how I recalled our encounter with a bug most notorious to human lives since the Spanish flu of more than a century ago. Now we are six months into the crisis. The COVID-19 pandemic is now, according to observers, in the midst of a second wave, which will claim even more lives going forward and possibly even spark some sort of a return to lockdown status. People are by and large coping to the changes, They are being told that these measures would have to remain in place while our doctors scramble to come up with a vaccine to protect us all from the killer virus. But what if the efforts to protect the public, as they tell us, have been misplaced? After all, 
significant numbers of high-profile figures in the fields of medical practice and science have been questioning the extent to which COVID-19 is deadly and contagious and if the lockdown measures undertaken were truly called for. One group in North America, calling itself the Physicians for Informed Consent, published an article entitled, Physicians for Informed Consent Compares COVID-19 to Previous Seasonal and Pandemic Flu Periods. The extent to which these experts were being censored across YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter is quite shocking. It's important to get reliable facts and statistics surrounding the COVID-19 virus if we're going to get an understanding of the dynamics animating the need for these measures. I decided to contact Susharit Bhakti, who, along with his wife, created a book this summer called Corona False Alarm. Susharit Bhakti is a specialist in microbiology and one of the most cited research scientists in German history a doctor, postdoctoral researcher at the Max Planck Institute of Immunobiology and Epigenetics in Freiburg and at the Protein Laboratory in Copenhagen. He was named Chair of Medical Microbiology at the University of Mainz in 1990, where he remained until his retirement in 2012. He has been stating since the dawn of the pandemic that the case for the radical measures instituted since March is not justified by the true nature of this virus. Professor Susharit Bhakti. If you look at the statistics of how many percent of infected in of the coronavirus, um, I would ask the audience whether they had any inkling how many percent died. Was it 40%, 20%, 10%, 5 5%, make a cross when you think you've got the answer. I tell you, it was way, way under 1%. Meaning that even without any antibodies, they didn't have any antibodies, therefore they got the infection with this new, so-called new coronavirus that was supposedly deadly and dangerous Anyone below the age of 70, even with pre-existing illnesses, the chances of dying was less than 1%. And if you had no pre-existing illness, the chances of dying of this COVID-19 was less than 0.1%, meaning that 99.9% would not die. Because, of course, we have modern medicine today, uh, we have excellent possibilities of treating these patients. We are not of the age 1918 where there were no antibiotics, no intensive care medicine. So you can't go around comparing this sort of thing. And if you do, you may be making a big mistake. Today, from the inset of the virus, 200,000 people in the United States died from the virus. So should these numbers not spark an outrage? Well, uh, you see, the whole problem about this virus is that uh, the definition of virus death, corona victim, entirely unscientific and violated all the basic rules of infectious disease. 
if, 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 if you had a positive test for this virus, a lab test, mind you, which is a PCR test. This is a test where you, the, the gene or gene fragments of the virus are multiplied so that it's like putting a loop on, 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 on what you're trying to look at to see if the virus is there or not. And um, this test was never intended for diagnostic use. This test was created for laboratory use, and there was no there was no mention at all that you could use this test to diagnose an infection. And in fact, this test does not diagnose an infection. If you have a positive test, it does not mean that you have a, an active infection. It does not mean that the infection made you ill, and it certainly does not equate with if you die of this, that the infection killed you. Because this is something that caused the whole wave of misunderstanding to go off all over the world. If anyone tested positive for this virus and jumped off a cliff, then it wasn't suicide anymore. The virus killed him. All right. I mean, it's so, it's so ridiculous. And this is what has been happening and what is happening even today, even in the US. The virus does no more and no less than any other coronavirus that would have done a year ago or two years ago. Except that last year and the year before, no one would have thought about looking for a coronavirus because these viruses are not important enough to get diagnosed. If you die of a heart attack, you die of a heart attack. And whether that virus there or a flu virus or any other virus is immaterial. It doesn't really matter. And it shouldn't matter. Because if you do this sort of thing, you are um, forcing upon others a false diagnosis. And making the correct diagnosis at death is so important for science and medicine. And you can see after six months how much self-destruction has already taken place, how many existences are, are ruined, how many you know, uh, people have died because they haven't been treated properly because the hospitals have been closed to them. My God, now people in Europe are wearing masks. Children are forced to wear masks in school. They're going crazy, you know, all this sort of thing. For what? Just because people are afraid. But if you look at the number of deaths, you see that if you're under 70, it's very, very short. I'm, I'm not being cynical. It's almost difficult to die. Yeah? The people who are dying are those whose lives are coming to an end with pre-existing illnesses. And it is correct, these people are at risk. But they are at risk for the flu, they're at risk for pneumococci, they're at risk for any agent that happens to hit them. So what one has to do is to protect those people specifically in the nursing home, in, 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 in the um, people of old age who are being taken care of. But you don't go around doing what the governments are doing now, putting masks on people who are not infected, prohibiting uh, them to, to, to make a living. You know, I mean, this is crazy. Could you talk about the lock? the lockdowns that were introduced, because uh, there's some countries that went you know, to extremes and others that did not. Um, 
could you maybe point to a, a few scenarios that, that show that the lockdown, because lockdowns, I mean, on the one hand, maybe you're protecting people from the virus. On the other hand, there are a lot of, uh, you know, uh, collateral damage. damage that could be uh, committed by the lockdown. So you just point to an example that, that shows that the but, lockdowns that are triggered uh, is not really uh, making the, uh, doing it, making a positive difference. Well, the, 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 the clear evidence in retrospect uh, is that the lockdowns never did any good. Um, and because they came too late anyway, when the epidemics were already going down. So any effect that you thought you might see was there anyway. And of course, the, 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 the prime example is Sweden, which came to the lockdown, as we all know. And uh, uh, without the lockdown, Sweden has not been doing worse than I now, than France, Italy, uh, the US. And you know, looking at this, there's no question whatsoever that the lockdowns have done nothing but damage. Damage. And, and all these restrictions that are being uh, continued in Germany, in Switzerland, in France, Spain, uh, whereby in Scandinavia, for instance, there is no mask. They, they don't have to wear masks. Nothing happens to them either. I mean, this is as clear as day, and we can't understand that people don't just stand up and say no masks anymore. Dr. Bhakti, uh, you, you mentioned the masks. Could you point to uh, examples of how these masks uh, were not only ineffective, but could even be harmful? to uh, those who wore it? Oh, well, it is well known that uh, wearing masks causes so many psychological uh, damage, harm to children in schools. You know, they go really crazy. And we have so many examples of children who hate these masks. The moment they're out of school, they tear them to bits and they start saying, and they scream, I don't want to go to school anymore, I hate these masks. And um, masks are also known to increase uh, the concentration of CO2, you know, that you breathe, breathe in and out, because CO2 does accumulate in the masks. And this is very bad for elderly people who have uh, lung problems, uh, people uh, I can tell you openly, my mother-in-law uh, has lung cancer and uh, she's an old lady and she's in terminal stage lung cancer. She was forced to wear a mask uh, when she went to buy her milk and bread in the supermarket and she collapsed in the supermarket and almost had to be taken to a, a hospital. But then she said, I will not go to the hospital because if I go to the hospital, I will never see my grandson again, and I will also probably never see, see my children. And uh, if you try to take me to the hospital, I have a plastic bag that I'm going to put over my head. She did. And so I'm rather emotional about this. I myself, I can tell you, uh, cannot wear a mask because my blood pressure is on the borderline. My blood pressure is about 135 to 140, okay? Systolic. When I put on a mask, 
Within 10 to 15 minutes, my blood pressure is 145, 150, which shortens my life. Now, there are millions of you in America. There are millions of people in Germany, in Europe, who are in the same position as me. And when they wear these damn masks, their blood pressure goes above the critical limit and their lives are being shortened. Not by years, but by days and maybe months. I don't know how much, but I refuse to wear a mask, okay? These are just two examples, but there are so many others. There are people who get frantic when they put on masks. They, they get psychic, you know, breakdowns. And so it's absolutely unethical that the politicians are forcing their people, they're dehumanizing them, all right? I'm using a very strong word, but it's true. Could you uh, maybe just talk about uh, the, uh, the role of other scientists? Because I mean, I know that there's a fair, fairly high number of people uh, that are uh, refusing to, you know, to go along with this, you know, something like you know, in the order of the hundreds, but there's still some scientists who stick to that, you know, the, the idea that this is something that, uh, you know, we should be taking precautions against and so on. Could you, under, could, could you maybe elaborate a little bit on what would guide them to, to go along with the, the normal course of action? Well, um, we're also perplexed. We can't really understand that our colleagues um, don't see through this. Uh, we, we, we have colleagues who are absolutely terrified of the virus, despite the fact that after six months, what I've been telling you is anyone can look up these numbers in the register. I mean, it's so easy. Just look at the numbers and you see that everything I said is true. And despite this, they still refuse, well, uh, refuse to stop being afraid <laughs> and uh, stop inciting fear in their patients and all their friends. But there's a real rift now in, in, this, uh, in the medical community. Ever more physicians and, and people at the front who are seeing patients see that it is not true that this virus is, you know, going rampant. Uh, we have hardly any patients in the ICUs in Germany with COVID-19, hardly any. We have hardly any deaths. It's, you can count them on one hand every day. You know, we have 2,500 deaths a day in Germany. And we have maybe five so-called COVID-19 deaths because they are dying with or because of the virus. So in fact, the, the, the COVID-19 is one of the, uh, most seldom causes of death in Germany at the moment. You know, and to our great delight, it was yesterday, I think, that 1,400 Belgium doctors um, signed and, and opened, they, vo they voiced their um, opinion that they said that this whole thing is uh, is a bogey and that SARS-CoV-2 is not the killer virus that people have been saying it is. And yet, just yesterday, I think Boris Johnson 
tightened the measures and the Bavarian government is thinking of tightening, getting soldiers in, you know, to control people. It's incredible. They, they want to mobilize the army. Oh my God, I mean, where are we going? I hope that America doesn't go this way, you know, but sometimes when I see what the Americans are doing, I start to get my doubts. I mean, we're in Switzerland right now and trying to talk to the Swiss because the Swiss are also behaving very, very childishly and extremely un-Swiss. The Swiss used to be the courageous, independent people who showed the world the way to go. America used to be one of those two, but no, no way. That was Susharit Bhakti microbiology specialist and author on the threat of COVID-19 being exaggerated. Susharit Bakni's book, Corona, False Alarm, published by Chelsea Green Publishing, is now available in the English language. Go to the site chelseagreen.com to order a copy or order from your local bookstore. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. What we just heard from Dr. Susharit Bhakti, and he is far from alone, is that the nasty decision to subject the public to draconian efforts to contain this virus was spread by several world governments without any evidence that the virus was as bad as they claimed it to be. The evidence rested on flawed data and analysis, resulting in measures which themselves posed a risk to life as the citizens endured them. Suicides, domestic violence, and poverty are just some of the examples of this collateral damage. There is one phenomenon definitely playing a role in building safe measures in our lives, Now in just every sector of life, people have to get into the habit of wearing masks over their faces in order to prevent COVID from spreading person to person. When I first heard about the virus in January, there was initially doubt it could even spread outside a confined environment. Several research papers have been released recently giving some credence to the belief that masks not only don't protect from infections, In some cases, it could even do more harm than good. One person who has been busy writing an article about the ineffect of masks is Mark Crispin Miller, a professor of media, culture, and communication at the New York University. He is also the author of numerous articles on media censorship and election fraud. I thought I would bring him on to comment about masks in today's field and about the propagandistic role being pushed down by the new pandemic? Well, um, over the summer, in fact, since this crisis began, and once I came over, you know, I I got over my own uh, panic over the uh, coronavirus. I mean, I lost a friend to it and nearly lost another, you know, whatever exactly it is. and I'm, I'm 70, I have Lyme disease, so I was duly cautious and kind of on the fence about its seriousness. But as time wore on, I became more and more struck by uh, significant uh, chinks in the official narrative. Um, 
I mean, going all the way back to the zoonotic origin theory that it had, it had leapt from a bat to a human, you know, which comes right out of the end of the movie Contagion. <laughs> um, and I, I'm a, a student of propaganda. That, that's probably my major uh, intellectual interest nowadays and has been for some time. So um, I, I, I realized that this was, we're living in the midst of and in a world devastated by a propaganda drive of unprecedented scope and sophistication. And as the mask mandates uh, were imposed and became all the, mo all the more aggressive, uh, I was increasingly struck by this in particular. Um, it, it started, what, what, what piqued my interest in the beginning was the fact that Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, who had been a staunch proponent of reopening and had even been invited to the Oval Office by Donald Trump to you know, get the presidential salute for his position, uh, suddenly, I think in June, abruptly uh, pivoted and was now mandating masks in Texas. Uh, his pivot is very similar to the one by the CDC and Dr. Fauci and the WHO, all th uh, three of which or whom had uh, basically um, articulated the, the scientific consensus on the usefulness of masks against respiratory viruses and all said very publicly that uh, healthy people shouldn't wear them uh, and, uh, Fauci was on 60 Minutes saying this, that they may make you feel a sense of security, but they're not really that effective. Then they all switched, they all shifted. And Governor Abbott shifted. And that was a significant moment in the politicization of this issue because it was reported by the New York Times and others as a kind of come to Jesus moment that Abbott had seen the light and understood that uh, indeed the United States should have been following China's example all along. That was kind of the subtext of this because the World Health Organization has always strongly championed China, China's um, draconian approach to this uh, and, and hailed New Zealand for following China's example. So then other Southern governors began to uh, fall into line and Sean Hannity of Fox News uh, did a TV spot or a PSA uh, urging people to wear masks. And um, it, was, it was coming at us from every direction as, as winning propaganda always does. It, it, it uses every available medium, every possible stimulus to uh, move large numbers of people to some thought or action. And it was happening here. So that we had Tom Hanks, you know, a, a kind of reliable arguably CIA-connected movie star, saying, I don't trust anybody who doesn't wear a mask. You had Banksy, the radical street artist, doing uh, works of art about the necessity of masking. Um, it, it was really everywhere we looked, everything we read, everything we saw, masks along the highways, wearing is caring. So I was um, very struck by uh, the summary published in April by Denis Rancourt, a uh, fellow Canadian, uh, you know, deftly and expertly summarizing the findings of seven 
uh, randomized controlled tests of mask wearing in uh, hospital settings from the past uh, 10 or 15 years. And they're all in agreement, and it's really very simple, that the virions of these respiratory viruses are simply too small uh, for uh, paper or cloth masks to uh, prevent their transmission. Uh, one doctor, Dr. Simone Gold in LA has, has used the um, metaphor that, you know, trying to protect yourself from this virus with a face mask is like trying to use a chain link fence to keep out a mosquito. It's a very apt analogy. It's just as ridiculous. And the N95 masks, which are uh, harder to penetrate, uh, are somewhat more effective, but only as long as, as they fit your face very, very tightly. And with use, the, the fit loosens and, and that opens up a pathway for the uh, virus to enter. Now, let me, let me pause and note <clears throat> something that nobody thinks about. What is it that healthcare workers in COVID wards have used to protect themselves from infection? Well, they wear masks uh, and respirators and goggles and face shields and gloves and a gown and booties. And that's the full regalia. You know, I spoke to nurses about this. That's, that's pretty formidable uh, protection against um, a highly infectious virus in a hospital setting. So the idea that, first of all, that that's in any way comparable to what we have to do out in the streets in the open air when we're healthy, that's ridiculous because this life is not a, a COVID ward. And secondly, the idea that one of these masks by itself can offer any protection uh, against a virus uh, theoretically passed along by a passerby on the sidewalk, which doesn't happen either. These are completely irrational notions. And I, the, the more deeply I dug, the more stuff I found, rigorous studies. Um, there's one in the British Medical Journal about cloth masks in particular, which warns against their use. I think it's from 2015. It warns against the use of cloth masks by healthcare workers because these are basically bacteria traps and are, are dangerous. There had been a major study published by Texas A&M University highlighting how masks were by and large beneficial in protecting from COVID. Professor Miller took a look at this and discovered several prominent voices calling for a retraction. The one you mentioned is the one most often cited. It was published, uh, I think in June, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science by a team at Texas A&M University. And it, it got all kinds of um, press, you know, the media was headlining this and so on. Well, so I, I took a close look at this and, and let me add, Michael, and I, I don't pretend to be a scientist myself. I mean, I, 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 my, my doctorate's in English and I've become a kind of uh, expert on propaganda study and, and media ownership and things like that. Usually I have to consult those with the appropriate expertise to judge these things. I went and I consulted the scientific reviews of that article. Uh, I went to the uh, Scientific Media Center in Britain this is on June 12th, and there were a whole a number of, um, a, lot, a big number of responses to this article from Texas and they were very damning. They pointed out the data was unreliable, the methodology was, was um, 
was 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 faulty, and uh, researchers at Johns Hopkins did the same thing. The article was a fraud. Well, they didn't retract it. It's up. Okay, this then prompts a closer look at Texas A&M University. What's up with A&M? Well, it turns out Texas A&M has extremely lucrative contracts with, I think, Pfizer and another pharmaceutical company. They're in business with them. Okay, so the, this is not a disinterested institution. This is an institution with an interest in keeping upon clear for the vaccine or vaccines that are coming at us, see? And everywhere mass is a way to protract the terror, to maintain the atmosphere of lockdown, even things might have nominally loosened up. Um, it, it is related to the scandalous campaign to discredit hydroxychloroquine, which has been proven overwhelmingly to be extremely successful in treating this disease. This has been affirmed in numerous studies worldwide and in countless clinical practices. Uh, the hospital in Houston, the, the, the local TV station actually did a report on this hospital success rate in treating COVID-19. They had not lost a single patient. And they had monitoring of uh, hydroxychloroquine, steroid, vitamin, you know, a cocktail that they used. Uh, there are hospitals in Florida that have used it with, with perfect rates of success. And here we have a propaganda drive telling us that it's not effective. Mainstream media have not been doing the job of reviewing the efficacy of masks, among other problems with the COVID story. I asked Miller about the press being held hostage by not only corporations, but conglomerates, and what role Big Pharma could be playing in this. Well, you raised a really good and, and complicated question. I mean, first of all, the fact that the media is largely uh, concentrated in, in, in the hands or within the tentacles of, I think, five multinational corporations is already a dangerous uh, development that I, I've been sounding the alarm about since the 90s when it was accelerating. And as we approached the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which just made everything much, much worse. So that's uh, definitely, a, um, that lays the groundwork for propaganda across media that are all owned by the same uh, corporation. And all five of them are very closely involved with each other and they all are connected to the CIA and the national security state and their advertisers, paramount among whom is Big Pharma. Then there's the Gates Foundation. There's a superb uh, article um, that was in the Columbia Journalism Peacekeepers, And it gets into his having so far granted on $250 to media outlets of all kinds. You know, NBC News, uh, The Atlantic, NPR, indirectly The New York Times, uh, so that they are all functioning as, as part of the mighty Wurlitzer that serves his and Big Pharma's interests. So this is a, you know, a classic example of the kind of corruption that has bedeviled the commercial press from the beginning, but has now become... Um, you know, a major threat to public health and the survival of humanity, I think, uh, because it's so concentrated. It, it, there is no competition within it. And NPR, which is supposed to be public broadcasting, is, is among the worst, and so is PBS. But Gates is also given to the BBC, you know. Uh, he's been very generous with media outlets abroad, so that it's, it's difficult to you know, find genuinely independent media. And this extends to medical journals. 
you know, for the reasons I alluded to in talking about Texas A&M, that university scientists and medical journals are, are, you know, basically in the pocket of the CDC, which is itself, uh, this, you know, the Centers for Disease Control is not acting in the public interest. It's a deeply corrupt organization, as is the World Health Organization. And yet our media, naturally, being complicit and being owned, always piously invokes them as if they were, you know, uh, ordained by God to tell us the truth about matters of public health. The opposite is true. The same is the case with Dr. Fauci. Um, he's an extremely corrupt person with a very um, um, destructive record in public health. But with the media running interference for him and those agencies, it's, it's very hard to, to get at those truths. And, and it's especially difficult with the most educated people I have found. Yeah. Well, the most, I'd, I'd yeah. like to then ask you, uh, I mean, you've been outspoken in, in, in this in a number of different areas. And uh, I, I'm wondering about the, the backlash, uh, you know, personally. I mean, could you share with our listeners examples of uh, how you've been treated for speaking so forthrightly about uh, masking and the a parallel of peril to civil liberties? Well, you know, I, I was, um, I, I've been written off as a conspiracy theorist since I wrote my book on the theft of the 2004 election. Uh, it's called Fooled Again. It came out in 2005 from a major publisher who, like myself, was really kind of staggered by the blackout on the book when it appeared. And I was especially staggered by, not, not a blackout by, but, but a slander by the left media you know, many outlets for which I'd written, uh, pieces by people I was friends with who actually called the book Conspiracy Theory and me a conspiracy theorist. And it's not a work of theory. It's all documented. But that, was the, that was the meme that was used to shoot me down from the so-called left, okay? I've been tagged as a conspiracy theorist. I had been frequently invited onto NPR to speak on various aspects of media, I was now persona non grata. I had written uh, a number of op-eds for the New York Times, I think four or five. And now I was a pariah. And, uh, you know, so my reputation took a, a public hit. Lately, as I have been focusing on the COVID crisis and the disinformation over it and the disastrousness of the approach to it through lockdown and so on, um, I've been specifically targeted at NYU, where I teach. Um, a few months after I started doing these things, uh, my uh, department chair sent me four what he called negative student reviews from a course I'd taught on propaganda the previous fall. This is months later. Four single sentences uh, very, very damning, claiming that I had harangued them in class and that I did nothing but flog conspiracy theory and so on. And he said, none of these have come from any student evaluations. And he wouldn't tell me who had given them to him. And he urged me to, you know, straighten up, clean up my act, uh, change my course descriptions, I guess to say, 
you should be forewarned that I'm insane and I will be uh, flogging insane theories in the class, something like that. So my response to this was to gather together uh, a couple of dozen glowing emails from students in that class and others, graduates and undergraduates, thanking me for uh, opening their eyes, expressing gratitude for the opportunity to learn how to study these things critically, right? And I sent them to him and I said, this is the real consensus. You know, I don't know where you got that quartet of uh, put downs, but I'm, I, I, I'm not even convinced they're authentic. So that went away. Now, just this week, what's happened is that a student in my current propaganda course, uh, who had come to the class late, about a week and a half into the class, missed the opening week where we talk about all of these general issues. You know, the difficulty of being truly skeptical, the challenge of being genuinely skeptical, and the necessity to be prepared to move out of your comfort zone when you study propaganda, because often you discover that things you have believed, and this has happened to me repeatedly in my life, it's happened to everyone who, who's, who's thoughtful, you come to see that something you believe to be true is not true. It's the result of very, very sophisticated propaganda. She missed those classes. So uh, when she came, we were talking, I mean, in, that, in such classes, I always focus on ongoing propaganda drives because this is not an academic subject. This is not something you talk about the Nazis and the Bolsheviks only or you talk only about World War I when modern propaganda began. Uh, if you approach it that way, you're basically doing propaganda because you're implying that it, we don't do it. You know, the North Koreans do it, the Chinese do it. We don't do it. Well, in fact, the United States and Britain invented it. They invented political propaganda. They invented commercial propaganda as it's, as it's, as it's been used ever since. So, my view is that you know you study its history and then you move directly to propaganda drives that are now ongoing you have the students do the investigation you know i mean i tell them things that startle them always saying pointedly do not believe a single word i say okay don't take my word for anything i could be wrong you know i could be right it's irrelevant i'm not making proclamations of the truth here i'm setting an example uh, of a kind of critical investigation that you have to carry out yourselves. So if something I say strikes you, you are obliged to look into it yourself, okay? So naturally, since we're, you know, I'm forced to teach online, their lives have been completely upended. Their socializing has, is under, you know, police surveillance and the university is punishing students for having small gatherings in their own apartments Okay, since we're living in, in at the heart of, of an unprecedented propaganda maelstrom, how can we not talk about it in class? So I brought up the, the mask thing. I, I mentioned it. I mentioned the scientific studies. I recommended them. I sent them links. And uh, this one student, I mean, who never said a word, about any of this during the class discussion, but sat there in what I recall now as a kind of stony silence. Just on Tuesday, started tweeting really uh, hostile uh, uh, statements about my, my course and 
demanding that NYU fire me, okay? That I be fired for putting everybody at risk, for uh, flogging dangerous disinformation. Uh, she refers contemptuously to the links I sent because, you know, it, it, this is very revealing because I don't run across many young people like this, but certainly older people, you know, certainly my peers and, and, and younger people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, who've been steeped in the New York Times and so on, they have a tendency to simply shut down in the face of counter evidence. They sometimes become abusive. You know, there, there's something about the fear of death that does this. In the minutes we had left, I asked Mark Crispin Miller to expand on the issue of what informed citizens could do to reverse the direction of a massive fraud carried out at their expense. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm in New York, which, which is uh, one of the most dystopian cities around, I'm afraid. It is unrecognizable to me as New York City. I am very heartened by uh, resistance movements, uh, particularly in Europe. Uh, I thought that the turnout in Germany was, was extraordinary and very, very inspiring, and that Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s uh, remarks were right on target that we are witnessing the rollout of a totalitarian movement, the likes of which we have never seen anywhere. This is global now. And we've got all these liberals and progressives screaming about Trump as a fascist, okay? We can get into that whole subject, but um, to, to, to point to Trump as a fascist threat when we're being uh, faced with mandatory vaccination immunity passports, we're having our temperatures taken remotely, uh, our movements are being tracked on cell phones, our socializing and gathering has been forbidden and is sometimes punished. Uh, if pe people can't see that that's totalitarianism, then they have been, they have their eyes wide shut. So what's the solution? The solution is for people to, uh, uh, those who have looked into this to spread the word, you know, however you can do it. It's what I try to do in class, it's what I'm doing with you. It's what you guys do with global research. Uh, this means increasingly that we have to find alternatives to Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, and people are finding them. But people have to resist. They have to say no uh, and not look at this in a politicized way. It has nothing to do with Trump or, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, that's all irrelevant. What matters is the truth. What matters is free and open discussion. Uh, that a student of mine would go on Twitter and demand I be fired for sharing a certain kind of information and that the university would apparently back her up. I mean, uh, my chairman sent her a reassuring tweet that they would make this a priority, which I found staggering, okay? The good news is that the reaction on Twitter has been overwhelmingly uh, positive, uh, you know, in, 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 I don't want to say in my favor, but in favor of, of free and frank discussion without having to fear the threat of unemployment or punishment. Um, it is now, astonishingly, the left that is more totalitarian, more pro-war, more pro-censorship, uh, more uh, 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 pro-biosecurity, than, than any other par, uh, uh, um, constituency. We need to tell the truth. As George Orwell said, in, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. 
And that is unfortunately true. That's the truth today. Uh, and, and therefore we have to heed his advice because I think his work and the work of other authors who understood the dangers of dystopian surveillance and control, you know, including E.M. Forster and Aldous Huxley and others, their relevance to this crisis is actually far greater than the work of Karl Marx. Uh, because this isn't just about capitalism. This is about a global elite heading in the direction of a kind of neo-feudalism, uh, where they will own most of the land and control the food supply, where they are actually at work on a eugenics project uh, to uh, lower the population. And this is something Gates has talked about openly. Ted Turner as well thinks the population should be reduced by between 80 and 90% of, of the world's population. This is the biggest landowner in the United States with huge herds of bison, right? So we got to wake up to this fact. We have to tumble to it. We can't turn away from it and say it's all just for short-term profits. We follow the money. We follow it beyond the quid pro quos that we talked about before, or big pharma profits from this kind of coverage. It's actually following the money to see that it also involves dividing and conquering the people splitting us up in as many ways as possible, red versus blue, black versus white, masked versus unmasked. And then we follow the money beyond that to see that the eugenics project, which began with the 20th century, funded by the Rockefellers and the Carnegie Foundation uh, and the Harriman family, uh, never went away. It, it, it was embarrassed by the Holocaust, uh, although all those interests backed and supported Hitler before the war, sometimes during the war, and it reemerged a few years later as population control. And that's now a key part of the Green New Deal and all that stuff. So part of the environmental movement is captive. It is an elite movement. Uh, and that's where the money leads us. And I'm, I'm saying to you, Michael, that in order to, for us to survive this and to defeat it, as I believe it can and will be defeated, because to be perfectly honest, it is evil. And I don't think evil can ultimately triumph. But God helps those who help themselves. So in order for good to triumph, uh, we have to step up. We have to be brave. We have to speak out. Mark Crispin Miller's essay is entitled Masking Ourselves to Death. It will be released soon. His site is markcrispinmiller.com. You can tune in to the weekly show... Global Research News Hour by listening to CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Fridays at 1 o'clock, or in any of a dozen stations across Canada and the United States. The show is also available as a podcast from the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this week's show, please don't hesitate to email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Please join us again next week for part two of our series on revisiting the coronavirus. Thanks for listening.